Let's turn again in our Bibles to Romans chapter 5. While you're turning there and standing, I was thinking of that song, Yield Not to Temptation. Speaking of pictures that stick in your mind, remember some time ago I heard an evangelist speak and he was talking about, he spent some time over in Japan and he was watching these sumo wrestlers of all things and of course the goal in sumo wrestling is one big guy trying to shove the other big guy out of the circle. And he said he was thinking of the battle between the flesh and the spirit and it struck him, I can guarantee you how to make one of those win, just starve the other one. And that picture is always stuck in my head. <laughs> I think of the flesh and spirit, I think of sumo wrestlers. I know, I probably shouldn't, but at least helps me uh, with the picture. So maybe it'll stick in your mind now too, I don't know. Alright, Romans chapter 5, let's, let's read verses 1 through 5. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand, and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope, and hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your precious word. And Lord, while we... We look at ourselves and in so many ways we grieve. We want to grow faster. We want to understand more. But Lord, we thank you for your workmanship in us. That ground has been gained. I thank you, Lord, for your precious promises. Father, I pray you would strengthen us this morning. To take you at your word. To deny the conflicting voice of feelings and wrongfully interpreted experiences. And a thousand other voices that we have to drown out. Help us to listen to the same voice that spoke the world into existence. And raised us from spiritual death. Thank you Lord for your continuing work and for the great blessings that you give us. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, during our summary time that we went over last week, I made the statement that Romans 1 through 4 is really primarily a legal discussion. And it's asking that great question how can a condemned and guilt-laden sinner like me possibly be declared not guilty in the sight of a holy God while justice is still upheld. And if you call to mind that courtroom setting in Romans chapter 3 verses 9 through 20, again in, in that passage there were many elements of an earthly court of law. There's a tremendous comparison there. Remember there's a charge that's brought, there's a prosecution, there's an indictment, there's a defense, and finally there is a verdict. But I think as we come to a passage like this, we also need to bear in mind that there are some tremendous differences between that courtroom setting in Romans 3 and what we find here on earth. Let's say a man goes down to the county courthouse here and, and he's declared innocent, he's found not guilty. But really that's where his relationship with the judge ends. Hopefully, if justice has been carried out, 
There's no special interest on the part of the judge for this particular man. There simply wasn't enough evidence for a conviction. The man leaves the courtroom and he goes back to life as it was. And the judge returns to the bench to take the next case in line. And the line never seems to get any smaller. There's no ongoing relationship between judge and formerly accused. Uh, the judge cannot offer any extra blessings to the man who's been set free. All he can do is condemn the lawbreaker. The judge has no power to give a changed nature to the man who departs the courtroom having been declared innocent. The judge has no ability to take care of any future pardons the man might need provided he ends up back in the courtroom once again. You see, the earthly judge is going to be found in the same place for the same reason no matter how many times that man returns back to court. Now take the guilty sinner who attends court in God's high court of heaven, provided the man willingly goes while court is in session during his earthly life, he finds a, a very different picture. You see, eventually he finds that the prosecution is actually headed by one who's called reprover. And while the reprover is laying out the thoughts and intents of his heart with impeccable accuracy and a terrifying weight of judgment, yet there's something in his voice that gives a distinct impression his ultimate goal is something beyond condemnation. The man has for his defense one who's called advocate, who pleads his case with tremendous sweat and Blood and tears and scars having borne all of the penalty that all the laws in the universe could possibly inflict. And of course, the judge is one who's called the Ancient of Days. So terrifying is his justice that it's guaranteed that no sinner can ever depart from his presence guiltless. But at the same time, in a strange paradox... While justice is upheld, multitudes depart this courtroom rejoicing because they have found that the prosecution and the defense and the judge are all the same blessed God who delights in mercy. And that this whole courtroom has been set up not only to establish the judge's justice, but also to bless them beyond all comprehension or expectation. Tell me, do you not find in your Christian life that sometimes you are guilty of thinking of God, of being like David, and how he treated Absalom? You've read it in 2 Samuel chapter 14. Absalom's in a distant land, and Joab sends a lady to come and plead with the king. To bring Absalom back. You see, down deep, uh, David, the king, he loved his son somewhere inside, but yet it was very begrudgingly that he brought him back. He had to be coerced into doing it. And Absalom comes into the kingdom, and David said, Let him go to his own house, but let him not see my face. Absalom was legally permitted in the kingdom. 
But Absalom had no real favor in the sight of the one who was his king and his father. You know, not only do we slander God terribly when we picture him that way, but we short-circuit our own Christian growth. You know, here in Romans, no sooner does the legal discussion end. No sooner does court adjourn and the gavel swings down declaring not guilty to those who come by faith for time and eternity that a massive gateway to God's storehouse of blessings that He can no longer hold back flies open. And that's exactly the subject here in Romans 5. Blessings of justification. I want to point out before we go any further that that the latter part of there in verse 1. These blessings that are mentioned are through our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, between the holy God of heaven and the guilty sinner, there's a massive impenetrable wall whose foundations descend clear down into hell and whose top reaches up into the heavens. Now that wall has been built brick by brick, sin by sin, iniquity by iniquity, transgression by transgression, and rebellion on top of rebellion. No sinner could ever pass through. But there I can see in my mind's eye a large gate over which is written, I am the door. I am the way. You see, Jesus was the way, not just to the blessings, the way, the truth, and the life, and no man leads to the Father but by Him. He is the gateway that, if you will, opens up the heart of God the Father to you and I. The wall has been penetrated, and the the blessings now can flow out. Having been justified by faith, having been declared innocent by the High King of Heaven, There are now certain possessions given to the believer not to earn, not to perfect, not to feel, but to take possession of. And they are absolutely critical if we're going to wage a victorious war against our three spiritual enemies. All right, what's blessing number one? Blessing number one, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now we touched on it again. Let me just remind us. We have got to understand. The critical difference between. The peace of God and peace with God. They are not the same. They are as different as feeling and fact. The peace of God. Typically when we talk about having a peace. In a direction or a situation. We are talking about the subjective awareness. Of what we feel about God's pleasure towards us. Isn't that right? Now that waxes and wanes with our experience, but the peace with God is entirely different. I think this is very well illustrated in the story of the parable of the prodigal son. Here's the son, he finds himself in a far country. He's living a debauched life. He's utterly ashamed of himself, and he's hesitant to remove to, uh, a return to his father. Remember what he's thinking in his mind? He's wondering if his father's disowned him. 
He's wondering if his father will even take him back. He determines in his mind, my place as a son is gone, but I'm going to go back and take the place of a servant. You see, he didn't have the peace of his father. But what did he find when he returned? Little did he know that father had been looking up on that horizon for days on end. And the minute the form of that boy appeared over that hill, he ran out to meet him. He threw his arms around his neck and he wept on his neck. And he clothed them with royal garments. And he put sandals on his feet. And he joyfully announced that his son had returned home. You see, that boy had lost the peace of his father. But what he always had as a possession was the peace with his father. That's how it's laid out in this passage. Your peace, your standing with God is a present eternal possession. Irrespective of what you feel, what you think, how you perform, how much you pray, on and on the list goes. And so this foundation begins there. You have to understand your positional peace with the God of heaven. It's a purchased position. It is not a performance. Now it used to be the storm clouds of wrath were brewing overhead. The jagged stroke of lightning from the justice of God terrified you. The constant weight of God's displeasure, though you may not be aware of it at the time, it was on your head. The threat from God was, now consider this, ye that forget God, lest I tear you in pieces and there be none to deliver. Every sin you committed stored up wrath upon your head. But having been justified by Christ, the storm clouds of God's wrath have given way to peace and serenity. It's been satisfied. The weight of sin gathered up on your head has been propitiated. It's been taken away. Now you have the same position that Christ had. And the Lord said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. All right, first is peace with God. Second, we have access into this grace where we stand. Do you see those twin towers? One, you have the constant settled disposition of peace from the God of heaven with whom you were at former enmity. And the second, you have constant access, unlimited, into his resources. Someone has described grace as God's riches at Christ's expense. I think that's a good acronym to describe it. Scripturally, what you find is Jesus Christ has always been the channel of God's grace. That's what's meant in the opening chapter of the book of John. The law came by Moses. Grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Moses didn't give the law. It came from the heart and the character of God. Moses was the agent of dispersing it. Jesus Christ has always been the channel through which the grace of God flows in every age. I'll tell you, preaching sometimes is such a frustration because there's scarcely tongue to describe things like this. Grace is God's good pleasure to bestow benefits and eternal blessings on those that are utterly undeserving. But you know what our problem is? We always want to know why. 
Why should he do it? There is no reason. God is gracious, not because of what you have done, but because it's who he is. Somewhere in the awful and unfathomless and unfathomable depth of his holy being, there's this massive fountain called grace. And it's not up to us to figure it out. It's up to us to believe that it's there. You picture in your mind the grace of God is sort of like this. I, I can picture this big grain silo. And it's so massive you can't see around it. And its top reaches up to the highest heaven. And inside that storehouse are all the riches that come from the grace of God. All the exceeding great and precious promises given unto us as believers. And you walk up to it and you know you can never fathom what's inside. But there's two things you have to know. One, there's always more than you need. And two, you are welcome to it. Look what it says about this grace. First of all, we have access. We think of access as, oh, here's a door. I can walk through it. This word access, you know what it means? It means the freedom to enter by virtue or favor of another. It literally means ushered into a presence. Here's Jesus standing at the gateway through that stone wall. And as you pass through, he folds you up in the folds of his royal garment. And he walks right through. And who in heaven would dare ask the Son of God, what right do you have to be here? When you're in Christ and you access him, the highest archangel in the heavens would never dare ask you, what right do you have to be here? See, secondly, it's this grace wherein we stand. So grace isn't just pictured as something God's giving and that's stored over here. Once again, grace here is shown as positional. It's not just something God's giving. God has taken you and set you in a place where grace has to constantly pour down. And once again, that was given to you as a blessing of your justification. You don't have to get up and wonder, is, am I going to miss the stream of God's grace today? My friend, you're in it. And you can't get out of it. You can deny it. But you can't get out of it. It's a purchased, settled position. But notice also, there's a lock on the side of this massive silo of blessings. And it can only be unlocked with one key. And the key is called Faith. You see, it's our settled position. We have access, but we have access through faith. And here's what that means. You and I have to understand. God is everything He has said He is. Irrespective of our experience. Have you ever thought about the fact that the grace of God from His perspective is doing nothing extraordinary for you. From God's side of the ledger, God is simply being like He is. And now that the enmity and that wall of partition has been broken down, God is simply responding as who He is. 
Now, what does it produce? Access to this storehouse? Here's what it produces. First of all, it produces a, a future expectation. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. You've probably heard it, but I'll remind you. The word hope, scripturally, here's what it means. It's a, it, it is a confident expectation of that which is future and unseen. You get that? Confident expectation based on solid evidence of that which is future and unseen. In this case, we rejoice in hope of the glory of the Lord. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which will be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. You find yourself groaning within yourself. The more you access God's grace, the more you find you look forward to the day when God finishes His work in you. And you are complete, not just positionally, but complete in all ways. Where you never sin against Him again, you never displease Him. You always serve Him out of a spontaneous, loving heart of joy. Well, that's wonderful. I look forward to that. But what about now? Here's the other thing that comes from that. Current triumph. We have a future expectation of what's coming. But currently it says we glory in tribulation. You know, it's interesting the word glory is also translated rejoice. Or even boast. Isn't that kind of strange? Look back over the uh, tribulations in your life. Tell me what's there to boast about. Can you boast that there were days where you despaired even of life? Can you boast there's been times where you felt your faith was going to totally collapse? Can you boast over the fact that there's been times you've hated your circumstances? But you know, it's interesting. It doesn't say we glory at the tribulation. It says we glory in the tribulation. Do you know that you will never reach a super spiritual plane where you love difficulty just for difficulty's sake? Sometimes we can read the accounts of the martyrs and those that suffered. And we get this unscriptural idea in their head that they wanted their head chopped off. Or that they loved the feeling of being engulfed in flames. No. What does it say about our Lord Jesus Christ? It doesn't say he loved the cross. It says for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Here's a man who's he's waiting on some list. He's waiting for a major organ transplant. The months tick by. And they cannot find a suitable match. But eventually he gets that phone call. We've got a donor. And although that meant that somebody has lost their life, the man begins to rejoice. He's told, be here first thing in the morning and we'll take care of the problem. And here you are sitting on the sofa and, and you watch him. He calls mom and he calls friends and he tells them the good news and and you look at him and go, what's wrong with your head? 
Do you realize that tomorrow morning a complete stranger wearing a blue mask is going to unroll a pile of sharp instruments? He's going to slice you open. The recovery is going to be painful and it's going to take months. What are you rejoicing about? He says, oh friend, I'm not rejoicing in the knife. But I'm rejoicing because... I know what the knife is going to produce. That's exactly the flow of thought here. You glory, you boast in tribulations, not because you love it, but it said, what's the next word? Knowing. You see, knowing is a, it's a doctrinal knowledge, but it one, it's one that grows and gets built upon by life experience. It's the same thought in the book of James chapter 1. Count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. Why? Because you know that it produces patience. And by the way, that's the same word mentioned here first. What do tribulations, what, is, uh, what do they produce? Number one, they produce patience. You know, the writer of the Hebrews said in chapter 10, verse 36 of that epistle, he said, you have need of patience. Same word. I don't know about you, but my flesh jumps up and says, how come? Why would a loving God ordain it that we had to learn these things through such terrible hardship? For one way, 2 Corinthians chapter 1 tells us that through the process of those tribulations and trials, we are made fitted to minister to other people. I'll never forget seeing this in Living Technicolor some years ago. I was with a dear friend of mine, much older pastor. We're teaching at the prison, and there's some things. I knew him well. I'd known him for years. And uh, one of the men begins to share how he'd been abused as a child. My friend stands up, and for the first time since I'd known him, begins to talk about how that happened to him. And I, I, I watched him minister to men. In ways that, in many respects, I couldn't. Because he'd been prepared by the tribulation. Another reason James 1 tells us, it's part of our molding to the image of Christ. It's part of our coming to completion. If he was, as the scripture said, made perfect through suffering, not that he was made sinless, he already was, but even he in his earthly life was brought to completion. James chapter 5. James says, well, you've heard of the patience of Job. Once again, same word. Why did God test Job so terribly? If you have a complete answer, tell it to me, because I don't think any of us do. But what was one of the reasons we see in the beginning of the book? One of the reasons God gave Job such terrible trials was to silence the mouth of the accuser of the brethren. Do you realize some of the trials that God sends you as his child may carry with it the express purpose that God wants to use your faith and your consistency and your knowledge of his word to shut the devil up? Because God wants to look at you and say, what do you have to say now? Revelation chapter 14, verse 12. It's an interesting statement. It says, here is the patience of the saints. What does that mean? Previous verse, those who took the mark are hurled into the lake of fire and the smoke of their torment ascends up forever and ever. You see what's being said? 
is God saying he vindicated the faithfulness of his saints and silenced the mouth of their enemies using their faithfulness in the backdrop. But you know, there's another reason for patience that's given right here in this passage. Here's another reason. God gives you patience, literally the ability to abide under is what that means. Because patience works experience. Now, it's not quite like we think of the word. If I were to watch you fall down the stairs, uh, you might get up and say, well, now that was an experience. And what you mean by that is it hasn't helped you at all, and it's really not one you'd like to repeat. You know, the word experience, actually, it's translated once again in other places as proof or experiment. And it carries the idea of proven character. Let me explain. Tribulation brings patience, the ability to abide under. With that comes this experience or proven character. In other words, you go through enough tunnels in your Christian life. You go through enough tunnels of whatever length. You go through difficulties and you go through trials. And over time, you learn that God always brings you out the backside with your sanity and your faith. And as time goes on, as you see evidence of the Spirit of God working in you, you have confidence growing through your Christian experience that you are the real deal. This year, one of the most ambitious engineering projects ever undertaken is supposed to be completed. For the last six plus years, crews have been working 24 hours a day to carve the world's longest train tunnel right through the heart of the Swiss Alps. When it's completed this year, if it's completed, the Goddard Base Tunnel will become the longest train tunnel on the planet at over 35 miles long. I don't know how much you like tunnels. Here's someone gets on the train, he goes through the tunnel and he's terrified. That's not so unreasonable considering there's trillions of tons of rock suspended overhead and water dripping through like we were talking yesterday. And he can't see the beginning or the end. I suppose this man does this once a week. What's going to happen is a growing confidence that just as surely as he entered that tunnel, he's coming out into the light. And it's because he's learned he's on the right track. And he has a conductor who knows where he's going. This type of experience, this proven character, doesn't show that we are anything special. But what it does do is give, give a confidence that God's begun a good work. And guess what? You go in the tunnel. You're coming out the other side. As that confidence grows, here's what else grows. Hope. Remember the definition, right? Futuristic expectation of that which is unseen. But here's the deal. You see, there, there's a kind of hope that comes through doctrinal understanding. There's a kind of future expectation that comes through just seeing what's written in the Scriptures. And that's great because faith does come by hearing the Word of God. But the other kind of hope that's being spoken of here, your hope is enhanced or expanded by the practical experience of going through trials 
going into tunnels and then coming out the other side. I do think that's part of the idea in Philippians chapter 3. He tells them, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Not work for. Work it out. Co-labor with God. As he manifests, you know, God doesn't need to prove to himself that you belong to him. But God does want to prove to you that you belong to him. And that next verse, for it is God which worketh in you to will and to do his good pleasure. Have you ever seen one of these senior saints and the closer they get to crossing the river Jordan? It's like their countenance starts to glow. There's not much fear of going into the tunnel of death because they know they're coming out the other side. You see, what's happened enough, they've gone into the tunnel enough with God. They've been through enough tribulation that's produced patience, that's produced that proven character, and they know what's coming beyond that river. I remember it was several years ago now, but I stood in the Palmer Cemetery on a cold February morning, I was holding a rope along with five other men and lowering the body of a 19-year-old friend into her grave. You know, this young lady, she'd been diagnosed with cancer and she'd gone through the treatment and then she was given a clean bill of health. And she, I remember her telling me later on that when she was diagnosed with cancer, she was gripped with fear and terror. She faced each day with an awful foreboding. She was scared to death. She's healed of the cancer, but she was told there's a small chance that this treatment's going to bring back another tumor that we can't treat. Well, that proved prophetic, and so she's filling out the papers to go to Bible college, finds out she has a fatal tumor. But I'll tell you, I didn't know that it was possible in the 21st century for a 19-year-old to face death with such joy and expectancy. You talk about a young lady who impacted a community. You talk about someone who faced death with joy. Because the first time she'd stared it in the face and she'd come out of the tunnel and her faith had been strengthened through Trial and through patience and through experience. And now she faces the longer, the darker tunnel. She faced it with hope. Someday we'll see her on the other side of that. What does hope do? Hope maketh not ashamed. Now that's an intensive word. It speaks of an intense shame that comes as a result of high expectations that are dashed to pieces. Say you find a man who's raised in a cave or a cabin somewhere in the forest, and he's been reared by people who only told him the truth. You take him out of that cabin at age 25, you bring him here into Helena, and you plop down the Sunday newspaper in front of him, and he begins to read the advertisements. Well, he gets up 15 minutes later, He's absolutely confident that every Big Mac that McDonald's makes is fresh and beautiful. He knows that everyone who uses Colgate toothpaste has a perfectly beautiful and gleaming white smile with the 
you know, a little shine right here. He also knows that every man who enters the casino up the street, always filled with joy. He's striking it rich with a beautiful woman by his arm. After all, that's what it promises. Now here's a man who's set up to be disappointed. And we find ourselves in a world that's all it can do is disappoint. Any hope that, the, that exists outside the promises of God will ultimately fail you. Your spouse, your parents, your children, your pastor. But the danger is, we begin to think of God the same way. Tell me, have you ever had your expectations destroyed? You had it all figured out, what God was going to do in a situation. You knew God had to, He had to move a certain way, He had to do something, and, and He didn't do it. You felt like your faith was decapitated. And you wondered where God was. Friends, you know, we can misinterpret some things and become disappointed for a time. I think that probably happens with all of us to varying degree. But let me tell you what can't happen. The person who places his trust in the Lord Jesus Christ can not be ultimately disappointed. He may misinterpret things here. He may find grief and disappointment now at times, but as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a cornerstone and stone of stumbling. And he that believeth on him shall not be ashamed in the final day. Why not ashamed? Verse 5 tells us another amazing possession given to us. Verse 5, the Holy Ghost which is given. You know, this time the present possession that's spoken of is not a what... It's a who. Tell me something. Is it possible to have part of God? You know, one thing the Jews had right in their theology, Jesus said God was his father. They interpreted that as he's making himself equal with God. You see, they understood God was infinite. And if you have a fraction of God, you have to have all of God. God cannot be anywhere part way. A lot of Christians act like they were given 5% of the Holy Ghost at their conversion. Friends, you either have him as a present possession or you do not. But the question then becomes, how much of you does he have? You see, it's not a matter of convincing the Holy Spirit to come in. It's a matter of believing he has come in. And adjusting my life accordingly tell me friend do you not see his working in your life if you belong to Christ who is it that convicts you of sin who is it that makes you aware there's a there's a certain rope and you're wandering from God and there's a point you know God won't let you go past who is it that works in you to desire to do the will of God that even though you struggle and flounder and fail you always get back up who is it that's convinced you to come listen to some raving nut like me, right? Either you stole these blessings from God 
or they're the product of the Holy Spirit who is indwelling you. You know, the Spirit is called in Ephesians 1.4, the earnest of our inheritance, the down payment. In other words, if you have any of the Spirit, you have all of the Spirit. And if you have all of the Spirit, He's the down payment. And if God's made part of the payment, He's going to pay the whole bill. And that present possession is proof positive that you indeed belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. And what's one of His primary ministries? He does a lot of things. Here's what he does in this passage. He sheds abroad the love of God in our hearts. That term refers to liquid being poured out. Kind of a distasteful picture, but in Acts chapter 1, speaking of when Judas hung himself and he fell and his bowels gushed out, same word, being poured out. So he's saying the Holy Spirit's ministry is taking this incomprehensibly vast container of the love of God and he's dumping it out in your heart. You know, the New Testament, every reference we find to the love of God contains or points to the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can bet the Holy Spirit is constantly working in your heart to shine the spotlight, not on this pulpit, but on what's been called the pulpit of God's love cross at Calvary that you and I might really begin to grasp what took place there the Holy Spirit shines that spotlight and what happens for one we find the greatest motive for service you know the greatest motive for service is not law it's not liberty it's the love of Christ constraineth me you find the greatest Communion with the living God. You remember how Paul prayed for the church at Ephesus in chapter 3? That Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. That ye being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all saints, that's you and I, and to know the breadth and the length and the depth and the height and to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. Do you get that paradox? To know the unknowable. Why? That you might be filled with all the fullness of God. You want to know all the joy God wants you to have in your communion with Him. The one big piece of that puzzle is that you and I begin to know the unknowable. We begin to swim in that ocean and to understand the unfathomable love of God for you and I. You want to pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ in this room? Let's get past, oh God, give them a job, and oh God, fix their toenail. It's not wrong to pray for those things. When was the last time you asked God to give your brother, your sister, a greater comprehension of the love of God that they might be filled with all the fullness of God. It also gives us the greatest boldness we can possibly have as mortals. For I am persuaded, Paul says, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor, nor height, or depth, or any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God 
which is in Christ Jesus. You know what made him charge the gates of hell with such tremendous boldness and sing in a Philippian jail cell? Praise God while the, the furrows of the wit dug into his back. It wasn't that he was commanded to. As he was persuaded by the love of God and he had begun to know the unknowable. Is it possible that you wake each day with the wrong perspective of things? What is your honest attitude when you get out of bed in the morning? Are you under a cloud of God's displeasure? Do you feel like Absalom? Well, God loves you somewhere within himself. Uh, you know, you're, you're tolerated in the kingdom, but you sure don't have any access into his presence. I mean, he doesn't really delight to see you. He may put up with you. He may give you access into the heavenlies at some far back corner, but it sure doesn't make his heart leap for joy when you show up. Oh, God has grace, I know, but uh, well, maybe it fits in this box here. It sure can't help me in my trials. Well, I know I have the Holy Spirit, but I, I really doubt it all the time. You know, it's God's desire, I believe, to wake up with these positional truths forefront on our head when we get up in the morning. When David said, when I awake, I am still with thee. He was saying, when I get up, the peace of God never stopped. The love of God towards me never stopped. The grace I stand in never went away. If we want real growth, not numerical, but in depth, it's not going to be as we add more rules. I'm a big fan of standards. We'll be talking about some of those as we go on. But they are powerless. It says we as individuals and as a church understand the peace we have with God. The grace that we have access to and where we stand. The Holy Spirit given unto us. The fathomless depth of, depth of the love of God. That's the foundation behind living in victory in the next chapters in the book of Romans and finding victory over sin. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what took place on that cross. Father, I pray you'd not only give us a, a joy and a thankfulness for our salvation that was purchased there, but open our eyes to see the mighty floodgate that's been opened and your desire to bless us and your desire to know your peace because we already have your peace. I pray you'd help us today to access this mighty storehouse of grace that we're given access to and given the key to. I pray, Father, you'd build up our comprehension of the love of Christ. Help us not to entertain doubt as though it's something noble 
or to stay back in fear of pounding upon the gate because you delight to receive sinners. And if we're weak, that's all the more reason to come because you delight to help the weak. And if we know we're wickedness, our our own wickedness, your grace is greater still. I pray, Lord, you'd give us a comprehension of these things that we might be filled with all of thy fullness. In Jesus' name, amen.